Hello and welcome to Scintillating Stories. In this show we read short stories by a variety of authors. Today we're reading a short story from James Hogg. He was a Scottish author and poet who is best known as the Ettrick Shepherd by many of his readers. One of his favourite subjects was Scottish folk stories which he would record and preserve. This story is one of those that is based on a traditional tale. Mary Burnett In this class of my pastoral legends, I must take a date, in some instances a century earlier than the generality of those of the other classes, and describe a state of manners more primitive and visionary than any I have witnessed. Simple and romantic as these have been, and I must likewise relate scenes so far out of the way of usual events that the sophisticated gloss and polish thrown over the modern philosophic mind may feel tainted by such antiquated breathings of superstition. Nevertheless, be it mine to cherish the visions that have been, as well as the hopes of visions yet in reserve, far in the ocean of eternity, beyond the stars and the sun. For after all, what is the soul of a man without these? What but a cold, phlegmatic influence, so enclosed within the walls of modern scepticism, as scarcely to be envied by the spirits of the beasts that perish? However, as all my legends hitherto have been founded on facts, or are of themselves traditionary tales that seem originally to have been founded on facts, I should never have thought of putting the antiquated and visionary tales of my friends, the fairies and brownies, among them, had it not been for the late advice of a highly valued friend, who held it as indispensable that these most popular of all traditions by the shepherd's ingleside should have a place in his calendar. At all events, I pledge myself to relate nothing that has not been handed down to me by tradition. How these traditions have originated, I leave to the professors of moral philosophy, in their definitions of pneumatology, to determine. The following incidents are related as having occurred at a shepherd's house not a hundred miles from St. Mary's Loch, but as the descendants of one of the families still reside in the vicinity, I deem it requisite to use names which cannot be recognised save by those who have heard the story. John Allenson, the farmer's son of Inverlorn, was a handsome, roving and incautious young man, enthusiastically amorous and fond of adventure, and one who could hardly be said to fear the face of either man, woman or spirit. Among other love adventures, he fell a-courting Mary Burnett of Kirkstyle, a most lovely and innocent maiden, and one who had been bred up in rural simplicity. She loved him, but yet she was afraid of him, and though she had no objection to meeting with him among others, as oft as convenient, yet she carefully avoided meeting him alone, though often and earnestly urged to it. One day the sinful young man, finding an opportunity at Our Lady's Chapel after Mass, urged his suit for a private meeting so ardently and with so many vows of love and sacred esteem that poor Mary was one, at least so far one as to promise that perhaps she would come and meet him. The trysting place was a little green sequestered spot on the very verge of the lake, well known to many an angler and to none better than the writer of this old tale, and the set time when the king's elwand, now foolishly termed the belt of Orion, set his first golden knob above the hill. Allenson came too early, for his heart yearned to clasp his beloved Mary all alone and he watched the evening autumnal sky with such eagerness and devotion that he thought every little star that arose in the south-east the top knob of the king's elwand. But no second one followed in regular time. He began to think the Gauden elwand was lost for the night, or withheld by some spiteful angel out of envy of the abundance of his promised enjoyment. But elwand did at last arise in good earnest and then the youth, with a heart palpitating with agitation, had nothing for it but to watch the heathery brow by which Bonnie Mary Burnett was to descend. No Mary Burnett made her appearance, even though the king's elwand had now measured its own equivocal length five or six times up the lift. Young Allenson now felt all the most poignant miseries of disappointment, and as the story goes, uttered in his heart some unhallowed wish, and even repeated so often as to give the vagrant spirits of the wild a malicious interest in the event. 
He wished that some witch or fairy would influence his Mary to come to him in spite of her maidenly scruples and overstrained delicacy. In short, it is deemed that he wished to have her there by whatever means or agency. This wish was thrice repeated with all the energy of disappointed love. It was thrice repeated and no more when, behold, Mary appeared on the bray with wild and eccentric motions, speeding to the appointed place. Allenson's enthusiasm, or rather excitement, seems to have been more than he was able to bear, and he instantly became delirious with joy, and always professed that he could remember nothing of their first meeting, save that Mary remained silent, and spoke not a word, neither good nor bad. He had no doubt, he said, that his words and actions both were extravagant, but he had no conception that they could be anything but respectful. Yet for all that, Mary, who had never uttered a word, fell a-sobbing and weeping, refusing to be comforted. This melting tenderness the youth had not construed aright, for on offering some further blandishments, the maid uttered a piercing shriek, sprang up and ran from him with amazing speed. At this part of the loch, which, as I said, is well known to many, the shore is overhung by a precipitous cliff of no great height, but is still inaccessible either from above or below. Save in a great drought, the water comes to within a yard of the bottom of this cliff, and the intermediate space is filled with rough, unshapely pieces of rock fallen from above. Along this narrow and rude space, hardly passable by the angler at noon, did Mary bound with the swiftness of a kid, although surrounded with darkness, her lover pursuing with all his energy, calling out, Mary! Mary! My dear Mary! Stop and speak with me! I will conduct you home or anywhere you please, but do not run from me! Stop! Stop, my dearest Mary! Stop! Mary would not stop but ran on till coming to a little cliff that jutted into the lake, round which there was no passage, and perceived that her lover would there overtake her. She uttered another shriek and plunged into the lake. The loud sound of her fall into the still lake rung in the young man's ears like the knell of death, and if before he was crazed with love, he was now as much with despair. He saw her floating lightly away from the shore towards the deepest part of the loch, but in a short time, she began to sink, and gradually disappeared, without uttering a throb or a cry. A good while previous to this, Allenson had flung off his bonnet, shoes, and coat, and plunged in after the treasure of his soul. He swam to the place where she disappeared, but there was neither a boil nor gurgle in the water, nor even a bell of departing breath to mark the place where his beloved had sunk. Being strangely impressed at that trying moment either to live or die with her, he tried to dive in hopes of either to bring her up or to die in her arms, and he thought of her being so fond on the shore of the lake with a melancholy satisfaction. But by no effort of this could he reach the bottom, nor knew he what distance he was still from it. With an exhausted frame and a despairing heart, he was obliged again to seek the shore, and dripping wet as he was and half-naked, he ran to his father's house with the woeful tidings. Everything there was quiet. The old shepherd's family, of whom Mary was the youngest and sole daughter, were all sunk in quiet repose, and oh, how the distracted lover wept at the thoughts of wakening them to hear the doleful tidings. But waken them he must. So, going to the little window close by the good man's bed, he called in a melancholy tone, "'Andrew Burnett, are you waking?' "'Troth, man, I think I be, or at least I'm half and half. What hast thou to say to old Andrew Burnett at this time of night?' "'Are you waking, I say?' "'Good wife, am I waking? Because if I be, tell that Stravager, say. He'll maybe tack your word for it, for mine he will not tack.' Oh, Andrew, none of your humour tonight. I bring you tidings the most woeful, the most dismal, the most heart-rending that ever were brought to an honest man's door. To his window, you mean, cried Andrew, bolting out of bed and proceeding to the door. Good sofas, man, come in, whatever you be, and tell us your tidings face to face, and then we can better judge the truth of them. If they have been in concord with your voice, they are melancholy indeed. Have the reavers come? And are our kai driven? Oh, alas, more than that. A thousand times more than that. Your daughter, your beloved, your only daughter, Mary. 
"'What of, Mary?' cried the goodman. "'What of, Mary?' cried her mother, shuddering and groaning with terror, and at the same time she kindled a light. The sight of their neighbour, half-naked and dripping with wet and madness and despair in his look sent a chillness to their heart that held them in silence, and they were unable to utter a word till he went on thus. "'Mary is gone. Your darling and mine is lost and sleeps this night in a watery grave. And I have been her destroyer.' "'Thou art mad, John Allenson,' said the old man vehemently. "'Raving mad! At least I hope so. "'Wicked as thou art, thou hadst not a heart to kill my dear child. "'Oh, yes, you are mad. God be thanked, you are mad. "'I see it in your looks and the whole demeanour. "'Heaven be praised, you are mad, you are mad. "'But you'll get better again. "'But what do I say?' "'continued he as recollecting himself. "'We can soon convince our own senses. "'Wife, lead the way to our daughter's bed.' "'With a heart throbbing with terror and dismay, "'old Jean Linton led the way to Mary's chamber, "'followed by the two men who were eagerly gazing "'one over each other's shoulders. "'Mary's little apartment was in the farther end "'of the long, narrow cottage, "'and as soon as they entered it "'they perceived a form lying on the bed, "'with the bedclothes drawn over its head.' and on the lid of Mary's little chest that stood at the bedside, her clothes were lying neatly folded, as they want to be. Hope seemed to dawn on the faces of the two old people when they beheld this, but the lover's heart sunk deeper in despair. The father called her name, but the form on the bed returned no answer. However, they all heard distinctly the sobs as of one weeping, the old man then ventured to pull down the clothes from her face, and, strange to say, there indeed lay Mary Burnett, drowned in tears, yet apparently nowise surprised at the ghastly appearance of the three naked figures. Allenson gasped for breath, for he remained still incredulous. He touched her clothes, he lifted her robes one by one, and all of them were dry, neat, and clean, and had no appearance of having sunk in the lake. There could be no doubt that Allenson was confounded by the strange event that had befallen him, and felt like one struggling with a frightful vision or some energy beyond the power of man to comprehend. Nevertheless, the assurance that Mary was there in life, weeping although she was, put him once more beside himself with joy, and he kneeled at her bedside, beseeching but to kiss her hand. She, however, repulsed him with disdain, uttering these words with a great emphasis. You are a "'Bad man, John Allenson, and I entreat you to go out of my sight. "'The sufferings that I have undergone this night "'have been beyond the power of flesh and blood to endure, "'and by some cursed agency of yours have these sufferings been brought about. "'I therefore pray you, in his name, whose law you have transgressed, "'to depart out of my sight.' "'Wholly overcome by conflicting passions, "'by circumstances so contrary to one another,' and so discordant with everything either in the works of the nature of providence, the young man could do nothing but stand like a rigid statue with his hands lifted up, and his visage like that of a corpse, until led away by the two old people from their daughter's apartment. They then lighted up a fire to dry him, and began to question him with the most intense curiosity, but they could elicit nothing from him but the most disjointed exclamations, such as, "'Lord in heaven! What can be the meaning of this?' and at other times, it is all an enchantment of the devil. The evil spirits have got dominion over me. Finding they could make nothing of him, they began to form conjectures of their own. Jean affirmed that it had been the mermaid of the loch that had come to him in Mary's shape to allure him to his destruction. And he had muckle reason to be thankful that he had keep it in some bounds of decency where else he would have been miserable through life, and a thousand times war through eternity. But Andrew Burnett, setting his bonnet to one side and raising his left hand to a level with that so that he might have full scope of the motion and flourish with it, suiting his action to his words, thus began with a face of sapience, never to be excelled. "'Good wife, it does strike me that thou art very wide of the mark.' It must have been a spirit of a great deal higher quality than a mere maiden who played this extraordinary prank. The mere maiden is not a spirit, 
but a beastly sensitive creature, with a malicious spirit within it. Now, what influence could a cold clutch of a creature like that with a tail like a great summit fish hey o'er our bairn, either to make her happy or unhappy? Or where could it borrow her clothes, Jean? Tell me that. Na, na, Jean Linton, depend on it. The spirit that caught it with poor sinful jock here has been a fairy. But whether a good ain or an illin, it's hard to determine. How long Andrew's disquisition might have lasted will never be known, for it was interrupted by the young man falling into a fit of trembling that was fearful to look at, and threatened soon to terminate his existence. Jean ran for the family cordial, observing, by the way, that though he was a wicked person, he's still a fellow creature, and might live to repent. And influenced by this spark of genuine humanity, she made him swallow two horn spoonfuls of strong aquavitae, while Andrew brought out his best Sunday shirt and put it on him in place of his wet one. Then, putting a piece of scarlet thread around each wrist and taking a strong rowan tree staff in his hand, he conveyed his trembling and astonished guest home, giving him at parting his sage advice. I'll tell you what is, Jock Allenson. Ye have run a near risk of perdition, and escaping that for the present or losing your right reason. But take an old man's advice, near gang again out by night to beguile an honest man's daughter, lest a worse thing befall thee. Next morning, Mary dressed herself more neatly than usual, but there was manifestly a deep melancholy settled on her lovely face, and at times the unbidden tear would start into her eye. She spoke no word, either good or bad, that ever her mother could recollect that whole morning, but she once or twice observed her daughter gazing at her, as with an intense and melancholy interest. About nine o'clock in the morning, she took a hay-rake over her shoulder and went down to a meadow at the east end of the loch, to coil a part of her father's hay, her father and brother engaging to join her about noon, when they came from the sheepfold. As soon as old Andrew came home, his wife and he, as was natural, instantly began to converse on the events of the preceding night, and, in the course of their conversation, Andrew said, "'Goodness be about us, Jean. Was no yon an awful speech you are bairned to young Jock Allenson last night?' "'Aye, it was a downsetter, Goodman, and spoke like a good Christian lass.' "'I'm no so sure of that, Jean Linton. My good woman, Jean Linton.' I'm no so sure of that. Yon speech has gain me a great deal of trouble of heart, for do you ken and tack my life? Aye, and tack your life, Jean. Nain o' us can tell whether it was in the Almighty's name or the deal's name that she discharged her lover. Oh, fie, Andrew, how can you say such? How can you doubt that it was in the Almighty's name? Couldn't as she have said say then? That would have put it beyond a doubt. And that would have been the natural way, too. But instead of that, she said, I pray you in the name of him whose law has been transgressed to part of my sight. I confess, I'm terrified when I think about yon speech, Jean Linton. Didn't she say, too, that her sufferings had been beyond what flesh and blood could endure? What was she but flesh and blood? Didn't that remark infer that she was something mere than a mortal creature, Jean Linton? Jean Linton, what will you say if it should turn out that our daughter is drowned and that yon was the fairy we had in the house all the night and this morning? Oh, hold your tongue, Andrew Burnett, and didn't he make my heart cord within me? We have I trust in the Lord yet, and he has never forsaken us, nor will he yet gie that wicked power o'er us and ours. You see very well, Jean. And we've mourning hoped for the best, quoth old Andrew, and away he went, accompanied by his son Alexander, to exist his beloved Mary on the meadows. No sooner had Andrew set his head over the bents and come back into view of the meadow than he said to his son, I wish Jock Allenson money hae been east of the loch fishing for jids the day, for I think my Mary had made very little progress in the meadow. She's o'er muckle taken up about other things this while to mind her work, said Alexander. I wouldn't wonder, father, if that lassie gang a black gate yet. 
Andrew uttered a long and deep sigh that seemed to ruffle the very fountains of life, and without speaking another word, walked on to the hayfield. It was three hours since Mary had left home, and she ought to at least have put up a dozen coils of hay each hour, but in place of that she had put up only seven altogether, and the very last was unfinished. Her own hayrake that had M and B neatly cut on the head of it was leaning on the unfinished coil, and Mary was wanting. Her brother, thinking she'd hid herself from them in sport, ran from one coil to another, calling her many bad names. Playfully, but after he had turned them all up and several deep swaths beside, she was not to be found. Now it must be remarked that this young man who slept in the byre knew nothing of the events of the foregoing night, the old people and Allenson having mutually engaged to keep them a profound secret, so that when old Andrew said, "'What in the world could have come over, lassie?' The son replied, with a lightsome air, "'Off with some of the lads, to be sure, on some daft errand. Oh, you ken little about her. She wad run through fire and water to be wee some handsome young lad. I believe if the deal himself were to come to her in the form of a braw, bonny lad, he might persuade her to do all air he liked.' "'Wished, Callant! How can you speak that gate about your only sister? "'I'm sure, poor lassie, she's ne'er gain ain o' us a sair heart in her life. "'Till now,' added Andrew, after a long pause, "'and the young man perceived his father looking so serious and thoughtful, "'dropped his raillery, and they began to work at the hay. "'Andrew could work none. "'He looked this way and that way, but in no way could he see Mary approaching.' So he put on his coat and went away home to pour his sorrows into the bosom of his old wife. And in the meantime he desired his son to run to all the neighbouring farmhouses and cots, every one, and make inquiries if anybody had seen Mary. When Andrew went home and informed his wife that their darling was missing, the grief and astonishment of the aged couple knew no bounds. They sat down and wept together, and declared over and over that this act of providence was too strange for them, and too high to be understood. Jean besought her husband to kneel instantly and pray urgently to God to restore their child to them. But he declined it on account of the wrong frame of his mind, for he declared that his rage against John Allenson was so extreme as to unfit him for approaching the throne of his maker. But if the profligate refuses to listen to the entreaties of an injured parent, added he, he shall feel the weight of an injured father's arm. Andrew went straight away to Inverlorn, though without the least hope of finding young Allenson at home, for he had no doubt that he had seduced his daughter from her duty. But on reaching the place, to his still further amazement, he found the young man lying ill of a burning fever, raving incessantly of witches, spirits, and Mary Burnett. To such a height had his frenzy arrived that when Andrew went there it required three men to hold him in the bed. Both his parents testified their opinions openly that their son was bewitched or possessed of a demon, and the whole family was thrown into the greatest consternation. The good old shepherd, finding enough of grief there already, was obliged to confine his to his own bosom, and return disconsolate to his little family circle, in which there was a woeful blank that night. His son returned also from a fruitless search. No one had seen any traces of his sister but an old crazy woman— at a place called Oxkulich, said that she had seen her go by in a grand chariot with young Jock Allenson towards the Burke Hill Path, and by that time they were at the cross of Dumgree. The young man said he'd asked her what sort of chariot it was, as there was never such a thing in that country as a chariot, nor yet a road for one. But she replied that he was widely mistaken, for that a great number of chariots sometimes passed that way, though never any of them returned. These words appearing to be merely the ravings of a superannuation, they were not regarded, but when no other traces of Mary could be found, old Andrew went up to consult this crazy dame once more, but he was not able to bring any such thing to a recollection. She spoke only in parables, which to him were incomprehensible. Bonnie Mary Burnett was lost. She left her father's house at nine o'clock on a Wednesday morning, the 17th of September, neatly dressed in a white jerkin and green bonnet, with a hayrake over her shoulder, and that was the last sight she was doomed ever to see of her native cottage. She seemed to have some presentiment of this, as appeared from her demeanour that morning before she left. Mary Burnett of Kirkstyle was lost, and great was the sensation produced over the whole country by the mysterious event. 
There was a long ballad extant at one point on the melancholy catastrophe which was supposed to have been composed by the chaplain of St. Mary's, but I've only heard tell of it without ever hearing it sung or recited. Many of the verses conclude thus, But Bonnie Mary Burnett we will never see again. The story soon got abroad, with all its horrid circumstances, and there is little doubt that it was grievously exaggerated. The gossips told of a love tryst by night at the side of the loch, of the young profligate's rudeness which was carried to that degree that she was obliged to throw herself into the lake and perish rather than submit to the infamy and sin. In short, there was no obliquy that was not thrown on the survivor, who certainly in some degree deserved it, for instead of growing better, he grew ten times more wicked than he was before. One thing that the whole country agreed, that it had been the real Mary Burnett who was drowned in the loch, and that the being that was found in her bed, laying weeping and complaining of suffering, and which vanished the next day, had been a fairy, an evil spirit, or a changeling of some sort, for that it never spoke save once, and that in a mysterious manner. Nor did it partake of any food with the rest of the family. Her father and mother knew not what to say or what to think, but they wandered through this weary world like people wandered in a dream. Everything that belonged to Mary Burnett was kept by her parents as the most sacred relics, and many a tear did her aged mother shed over them. Every article of her dress brought the once comely wearer to mind. The handsome shoes that her feet had shaped, and even the very head of her hay-rake with the M and B cut upon it were laid carefully by in the little chest that had once been hers, and served as dear memorials of one that was now no more. Andrew often said, that to have lost the darling child of their old age in any way would have been a great trial, but to lose her in the way that they had done was really mere than any human frailty could endure. Many a weary day did he walk by the shores of the loch, looking eagerly for some vestige of her garments, and though he trembled at every appearance, yet did he continue to search on. He had a number of small bones collected that had belonged to lambs and other minor animals, and haply some of them to fishes, from a fond supposition that they might once have formed joints of her toes or fingers. These he kept concealed in a little bag, in order, he said, to let the doctor see them but no relic besides these could he ever discover of his Mary's body. Young Allenson recovered from his raging fever scarcely in the manner of other men, for he recovered all at once after a few days' raving and madness. Mary Burnett, it appeared, was by him no more remembered. He grew ten times more wicked than before, and hesitated at no means of accomplishing his unhallowed purposes. His passion for women grew in a mania that blinded the eyes of his understanding— and hindered him from perceiving the path of moral propriety, or even that of common decency. This total depravity the devout shepherds and cottagers around him regarded as an earthly and ethereal curse fixed on him, a mark like that which God put upon Cain, that whosoever knew him might shun him. They detested him, and both in their families and in the wild, when there was no ear but that of heaven— they prayed protection from his devices, as if he had been the wicked one. And they all prophesied that he would make a bad end. One fine day, about the middle of October, when the days begin to get very short and the nights long and dark, on a Friday morning, the next year but one after Mary Burnett was lost, a memorable day in the fairy annals, John Allenson, younger of Inverlorn, went to a great hiring fair at a village called Moffat in Annandale, in order to hire a housemaid. His character was so notorious that not one pretty maiden in the district would serve in his father's house. So away he went to the fair at Moffat to hire the prettiest and loveliest girl he could there find, with the generous intention of seducing her as soon as she came home. This was no suppositious accusation, for he acknowledged his plan to Mr. David Welch of Carriferen, who rode down to the market with him, and seemed to boast of it and dwell on it with delight. But the maidens of Annandale had a guardian angel in the fair that day, of which neither he nor they were aware. Allenson looked through the hiring market and though the hiring market, and at length fixed on one which indeed was not difficult to do, for there was no such form there for elegance and beauty. She had all the appearance of a lady, but she had the badge of servitude in her bosom, a little rose of paradise without the leaves, so that Allenson knew she was to hire. He urged her for some time with emotions of the wildest delight, 
and at length, meeting with his young companion, Mr. David Welch, he pointed her out to him, and asked how she would suit. Mr. Welch answered that he was in great luck indeed if he acquired such a mistress as that. If, said he, I think you need hardly put an if to it. Stop there for a space, and I will let you see me engage her in five minutes. Mr. Welch stood still and eyed him. He took the beauty aside. She was clothed in green, and as lovely as a new-blown rose. Are you to hire, pretty maiden? Yes, sir. Will you hire with me? I care not, though I do. But if I hire with you, it must be for the long term. Certainly. The longer the better. What are your wages to be? You know, if I hire, I must be paid in kind. I must have the first living creature that I see about Inverlorn to myself. I wish it may be me, then. But what the devil do you know about Inverlorn? I think I should know about it. Bless me, I know the face as well as I know my own, and better. But the name has somehow escaped me. Pray, may I ask your name? Hush, hush, she said solemnly, and holding up her hand at the same time. Hush, hush. You better say nothing about that here. I am in utter amazement, exclaimed he. What is the meaning of this? I conjure you to tell me your name. It is Mary Burnett, said she in a soft whisper and at the same time she let down a green veil over her face. If Allenson's death warrant had been announced to him at that moment, it could not have deprived him so completely of sense and motion. His visage changed into that of a corpse. His jaws fell down and his eyes became glazed so as apparently to throw no reflection inwardly. Mr. Welch, who had kept his eyes steadily on them all the while, perceived his comrade's dilemma and went up to him. Allenson? "'Mr. Allenson, what the deuce is the matter with you, man?' said he. "'Why, the girl has bewitched you, and turned you into a statue.' Allenson made some sound with his voice, as if attempting to speak, but his tongue refused its office, and he only jabbered. Mr. Welch, conceiving that he was seized in some fit or about to faint, supported him into the Johnson's arms and got him something to drink, but he either could not or would not grant him any explanation.' Welch, being, however, resolved to see the maiden in green once more, persuaded Allenson, after causing him to drink a good deal, to go out into the hiring market again in search of her. They ranged the market through and through, but the maiden in green was gone, and not to be found. She had vanished in the crowd the moment she divulged her name, and even though Welch had his eye fixed on her, he could not discover which way she went. Allenson appeared to be in a kind of stupor as well as terror but when he found that she had left the market, he screwed his courage to the sticking place once more and resolving to have a winsome housemaid from Annandale, he began again to look out for the top of the market. He soon found one more beautiful than the last. She was like a sylph clothed in robes of pure snowy white with green ribbons. Again he pointed his new flower out to Mr. David Welch, who declared that such a perfect model of beauty he had never seen in his life. Allenson, being resolved to have this one at any wages, took her aside and put the usual question. Do you wish to hire a pretty maiden? Yes, sir. Will you hire with me? I care not that I do. What then are your wages to be? Come, say I, and be reasonable. I am determined not to part with you for a trifle. My wages must be in kind. I work on no other conditions. Pray, how are all the good people about in Verlone? Allenson's breath began to cut, and a chillness to creep through his whole frame and he answered with a faltering tongue, I, I thank you. Much in their ordinary way. And your aged neighbours, rejoined she, are they still alive and well? I, I, I think they are, said he, panting for breath. But, but curse me if I know who I am indebted to for these kind recollections. What? said she. Have you so soon forgot? Mary Burnett of Kirk style. Allenson started as if a buffet had gone through his heart. The lovely sylph-like form glided into the crowd and left the astounded libertine once more standing like a rigid statue. Until aroused by his friend, Mr. Welch. He tried a third fair one and got the same answers and the same name given. Indeed, the first time ever I heard the tale, it bore that he tried seven, who all turned out to be Mary Burnett's of Kirk style. But I think it unlikely that he would try so many, as he must long ere that time have been sensible that he laboured under some power of enchantment. However, when nothing else would do, he helped himself to a good proportion of strong drink, 
While he was thus engaged, a phenomenon of beauty and grandeur came into the fair that caught the sole attention of all present. This was a lovely dame riding in a gilded chariot, with two liverymen before and two behind, clothed in green and gold. And never sure was there so splendid a meteor seen in a Moffat fair. The word instantly circulated in the market that this was the Lady Elizabeth Douglas, eldest daughter to the Earl of Morton, who had sojourned at Ochen Castle in the vicinity of Moffat, and which lady at the time was celebrated as a great beauty all over Scotland. She was afterwards Lady Keith, and the mention of this name in the tale, as it were, by mere accident, fixes the era of it in the reign of James the Fourth, at the very time that fairies, brownies and witches were at their rifest in Scotland. Everyone in the market believed the lady to be the daughter of the Earl of Morton, and when she came to the Johnson Arms, a gentleman in green came out bareheaded and received her out of the carriage. All the crowd gazed at such unparalleled beauty and grandeur, but none was half so much overcome as Allenson. His heart, being a mere general slave to female charms, was smitten in proportion as this fair dame excelled all others he had ever seen. He had never conceived aught half so lovely either in earth or heaven or fairyland, and his heart at first sight burned with an inextinguishable flame of love towards her. But alas, there is no reason to fear that there was no spark of that refined and virtuous love in him, which is the delight of earth and heaven. It might be more fervent and insufferable, but it wanted the sweet serenity and placid delights of the former. His was not a ray from the paradise above, but a burning spark from the regions below. From thence it arose, and in all its wanderings, thitherward it pointed again. While he stood in this burning fever of love and admiration, his bosom panting and his eyes suffused with tears, think of his astonishment, and the astonishment of the countless crowd that looked on him, when this brilliant and matchless beauty beckoned him towards her. He could not believe his senses, but looked hither and thither to see how others regarded the affair. But she beckoned him a second time, with such a winning courtesy and smile that immediately he pulled off his beaver cap and hastened up to her. And without more ado, she gave him her arm, and the two walked into the hostel. Allenson conceived that he was thus distinguished by Lady Elizabeth Douglas, the flower of the land, and so did all the people in the market, and greatly they wondered who the young farmer could be that was thus particularly favoured. For it ought to be mentioned that he had not one personal acquaintance in the fair, save Mr. David Welch of Cariferon. But no sooner had she got him into a private room than she began to inquire kindly of his health and recovery from the severe malady by which he was visited. Allenson thanked her ladyship with all the courtesy he was master of, and being by this time persuaded that she was in love with him, he became as light as if treading on the air. She next inquired after his father and mother. Oh-ho, thinks he to himself. Poor creature, she's terribly in for it. But her love shall not be thrown away upon a backward or ungrateful object. He answered her with great politeness, and at length began to talk of her noble father and young Lord William, but she cut him short by asking if he did not recognise her. Oh yes, he knew who her ladyship was, and remembered that he had seen her comely face often before, although he could not recall to his memory the precise time or places of their meeting. She asked him for his old neighbours of Kirk's style, and if they were still in life and health. Allenson felt as if his heart were a piece of ice. A chillness spread over his whole frame. He sank back on a seat and remained motionless. But the beautiful and adorable creature soothed him with kind words, and even with blandishments, till he again gathered courage to speak. What? What? said he. And has it been your own lovely self who has been playing tricks on me this whole day? A first love is not easily extinguished, Mr. Allenson, said she. You may guess from my appearance that I have been fortunate in life, but for all that my first love for you has continued the same unaltered and unchanged, and you must forgive the little freedoms I use today to try your affections and the effects my appearance would have on you. 
it, it argues something for my good taste, however, that I never pitched on any face for beauty today but your own, said he. But now that we have met once more, we shall not so easily part again. I will be devoted the rest of my life to you. Only let me know the place of your abode. It is hard by, said she, only a very little space from this. And happy, happy would I be to see you there tonight, were it proper or convenient. But my lord is at present from home, and in a distant country. I should not conceive that any particular hindrance to my visit, said he, for in truth I account it one of the most fortunate events that has happened to me. And visit you I will, and visit you I shall this night, that you may depend upon. But I hope, Mr. Allenson, that you are not of the same rakish disposition that you were on our first acquaintance. For if you are, I could not see your face under my roof on any account. Why, the truth is, madam, that the country people reckon me a hundred degrees worse. But I know myself to be, in fact, many thousand degrees better. However, let it suffice that I have no scruples in visiting my old sweetheart in the absence of her lord, nor are they increased by this great distance from home. With great apparent reluctance, she at length consented to admit of his visit, and offered to leave one of her gentlemen, whom she could trust to be his conductor. But this he positively refused. It was his desire, he said, that no eye of man should see him enter or leave her happy dwelling. She said that he was a self-willed man, but should have his own way, and after giving him such directions as would infallibly lead him to her mansion— she mounted her chariot and was driven away. Allenson was uplifted above every sublunary concern. Sinful as the adventure was, he gloried in it, for such adventures were his supreme delight. Seeking out his friend, David Welch, he imparted to him his extraordinary good fortune, but he did not tell him that she was not the Lady Elizabeth Douglas. Welch insisted on accompanying him, but this he would in no wise admit. The other, however, set him on the way, and refused to turn back till he had come to the very point of the road next to the lady's splendid mansion, and in spite of all that Allenson could say, Welch remained there till he saw his comrade enter the court gate, which glowed with lights as innumerable as the stars of the firmament. Ah, what a bad girl that Lady Elizabeth Douglas must be for all her beauty, said Mr. Welch to himself. But oh, that I had that wild fellow's fortune tonight! David Welch did not think so before that day eight days. Let no man run on in evil, and expect, and expect that good will spring out of it. Allenson had promised to his father and mother to be home on the morning after the fair to breakfast. He came not either that day or the next. And the third day the old man mounted his white pony and rode away towards Moffat in search of his son. He called at Carifuran on his way and made inquiries at Mr. Welch. The latter manifested some astonishment that the young man had not returned. Nevertheless, he assured his father of his safety, and desired him to return home, and then, with reluctance, confessed that the young man was engaged in an amour with the Earl of Morton's beautiful daughter, that he had gone to the castle by appointment, and that he, David Welch, had accompanied him to the gate and seen him enter, and it was apparent that his reception had been a kind one since he had tarried so long. The old man lifted off his bonnet with the one hand, and with the other wiped a tear from his eye, saying at the same time, "'Then I'll never see him alive again. For several years I have foreseen that woman would infallibly be the end of him, and now he has gone upon his wild adventures in the family of the proud Earl Douglas of Morton. How is it likely that he shall never escape the fate that in reality he deserves?' How inscrutable are the divine decrees! My son was born to the doom that has overtaken him. On the night that he was born there was a weeping and wailing of women all around our house, and even in the bed where his mother was confined. And as it was a brownie that brought the midwife, no one ever knew who she was or whence she came. His life has been one of mystery, and his end will be the same. Mr. Welch, seeing the old man's distress, was persuaded to accompany him on his journey, as the last who had seen his son and seen him enter the castle. On reaching Moffat, they found his steed standing at the hostel, whither it had returned in the night of the fair before the company broke up, but the owner had not been heard of since seen in the company of Lady Elizabeth Douglas. The old man set out for Ochen Castle, taking Mr. David Welch along with him, 
but long ere they reached the place Mr. Welch assured him that he would not find his son there, as it was nearly in a different direction that they had rode by appointment on the evening of the fair. However, to the castle they went and were admitted to the earl, who laughed heartily at the old man's tale, and seemed to consider him in a state of derangement. He went for his daughter Elizabeth, and questioned her concerning her meeting with the son of the old respectable countryman, of her appointment with him on the night of the preceding Friday, and concluded by saying he hoped she had him still in some safe concealment about the castle. The lady, hearing her father talk thus flippantly, and seeing the serious and dejected looks of the old man towards her, knew not what to say, and asked an explanation. But Mr. Welch put a stop to it by declaring to old Allenson that Lady Elizabeth was not the lady with whom his son made the appointment, for he had seen her, had considered her lineaments very minutely, and would engage to know her again among ten thousand. Nor was that the castle to which he had conducted his son, nor anything like it. But go with me, continued he, and though I am a stranger in this district, I think I can take you to the very place. Away they went again, and Mr. Welch traced the road from Moffat by which young Allenson and he had gone to the appointed place, until, after travelling several miles, they came to a place where the road struck off to the right at an angle. Now I know we are right, said Welch, for here we stopped, and your son entreated me to return, which I refused, and accompanied him to yon large tree, and a little way beyond it, from whence I saw him received in at that splendid gate. We shall now be in sight of the mansion in three minutes. They passed on to the tree and a space beyond it, but then Mr. Welch lost the use of his speech as he perceived that there was neither palace nor gate there, but a tremendous gulf fifty fathoms deep, and a dark stream foaming and boiling below. "'How is this?' said old Allenson. "'There is neither mansion nor habitation of man here.' Welch's tongue for a long space refused its office, and there he stood like a statue gazing on the altered and awful scene. "'He only who made the spirits of men,' said he at last, "'and all the spirits that such and in the earth and air can tell how this is. We are wandering in a world of enchantment, and have been influenced by some agencies above human nature or without its pale, for here of a certainty did I take leave of your son. And there in that direction, and apparently either on the verge of that gulf or the space above it, did I see him recede in at the court gate of a mansion, splendid beyond all conception. How can human comprehension make anything of this? They went forward to the verge, Mr. Welch leading the way to the very spot on which he saw the gate opened and there he found marks where a horse had been plunging. Its feet had been over the brink, but it seemed to have recovered itself, and deep, deep down and far within lay the mangled corpse of John Allenson. And in this manner, mysteries beyond all example, terminated the career of that wicked and flagitious young man. What a beautiful moral may be extracted from this fairy tale! But among all these turnings and windings, there is no account given, you will say, for the fate of Mary Burnett, for this last appearance of hers at Moffat seems to have been altogether a phantom or illusion. Gentle and kind reader, I can give you no account of the fate of that maiden. For though the ancient fairy tale proceeds, it seems to me to involve her fate in ten times more mystery than what is previously related for if she was not a changeling or the queen of the fairies herself, I can make nothing of her. The yearly return of the day on which Mary was lost was observed as a day of mourning by her aged and disconsolate parents, a day of sorrow, of fasting and humiliation. Seven years came and passed away, and the seventh returning day of fasting and prayer was at hand. On the evening previous to this, old Andrew was moving along the sands of the loch, still looking for some relic of his beloved Mary, when he was aware of a little shriveled old man who came posting towards him. The creature was not above five spans in height, and had a face scarcely like that of a human creature. But he was nevertheless civil in his deportment and sensible in speech. He bade Andrew a good evening and asked him what he was looking for. Andrew answered that he was looking for that which he would never find. "'Pray, what is your name, ancient shepherd?' said the stranger. "'For methinks I should know something of you, and perhaps have a commission to you.' "'Alas, why should you ask after my name?' 
said Andrew. My name is now nothing to anyone. Had not you once a beautiful daughter named Mary? said the stranger. It's a heart-rending question, man, said Andrew. But certes, I had once a beloved daughter named Mary. What became of her? said the stranger. Andrew shook his head, turned round and began to move away. It was a theme that his heart could not brook. He sauntered along the loch sands, his dim eyes scanning every white pebble as he passed along. There was a hopelessness apparent in his stooping form, his gait, his eye, his features. In every step that he took, there was a hopeless apathy. The dwarf followed him along and began to expostulate with him. Old man, I see you are pining under some real or fancied affliction, said he. But in continuing to do so, you are neither acting according to the dictates of reason nor true religion. What is man that he should fret for the son of a man that he should repine under the chastening hand of his maker? I am far from justifying myself, returned Andrew, surveying his shriveled monitor with some degree of astonishment. There are some feelings that neither reason nor religion can o'ermaster, and there are some that a parent may cherish without sin. I deny the position, said the stranger, taken either absolutely or in relative degree. All repining under the supreme decree is leavened with unrighteousness. But, subtleties side, I ask you as I did before, what became of your daughter? Ask the father of her spirit and the framer of her body, said Andrew solemnly. Ask him into whose hands I committed her from childhood. He alone knows what became of her. But I do not know. How long is it since you lost her? It is seven years tomorrow. Aye, you remember the time well. And are you mourning for her all this while? Yes, and I will go down to the grave mourning for my only daughter, the child of my age, and of all my affection. Oh, thou unearthly-looking monitor, knowest thou aught of my darling child, for if thou dost, thou wilt know that she was not like other women. There was a simplicity, a purity, and a sublimity about my lovely Mary that was hardly consistent with our frail nature. Wouldst thou like to see her again? said the dwarf snappishly. Andrew turned around, his whole frame shaking as if with a palsy, and gazed on the audacious shrimp. See her again. See her again, creature, cried he vehemently. Would I like to see her again, sayst thou? I said so, said the dwarf. And I say further, dost thou know this token? Look and see if thou dost. Andrew took the token and looked at it then at the shriveled stranger, and then at the token again, and at length he burst into tears and wept aloud. But they were tears of joy, and his weeping seemed to have some breathings of laughter intermingled with it. And still as he kissed and kissed the token, he brayed out in broken and convulsive sentences, Yes, old body, I do know it, I do know it, I, I do know it. It is indeed the same golden Edward with three holes in it with which I presented my Mary on her birthday in her eighteenth year to buy her a new suit for the holidays. But when she took it, she said, I, I mind weel what my bonny woman said. It is say bonny and say kenspeckle, said she, that I think I'll keep it for the sake of the giver. Oh, dear Dear and blessed little creature, tell me how she is and where she is. Is she living or is she dead? Is she in the earth or in heaven? For I can wheel she is in ain of em. She is living and in good health, said the dwarf, and better and broader and happier and lovelier than ever. And if you make haste, you will see her and her family at Moffat tomorrow afternoon. They are to pass there on a journey, but it is an express one, and I am sent to you with that token to inform you of the circumstance, that you may have it in your power to see and embrace your beloved daughter once before you die. And am I to meet my Mary at Moffat? 
Come away, little dear. Welcome, body, thou blessed of heaven. Come away and taste of an old shepherd's best cheer, and I'll gang foot for foot with you to Moffat, and my old wife shall gang foot for foot with us too. I tell you, little blessed, and welcome, Kryle, come along with me. I may not tarry to enter your house or taste with your cheer, good shepherd, said the being. May plenty still be within your walls and a thankful heart to enjoy it, but my directions are neither to taste meat nor drink in this country, but to haste back to her that sent me. Go haste and make ready, for you have no time to lose. Uh, At what time will she be there? cried Andrew, flinging the plaid from him to run home with the tidings. "'Precisely when the shadow of the Holy Cross falls due east,' cried the dwarf, and turning round he hastened on his way. When old Jean Linton saw her husband come hobbling and running home without his plaid and having his doublet flying wide open, she had no doubt that he had lost his wits, and full of anxiety she met him at the side of the kale-yard. "'Goodness preserve us all in our right senses, Andrew Burnett! What's the matter with you?' "'Stand out of my gate, wife, for do you see I'm rather in a haste?' "'I see that indeed, good man, but stand still and tell me what is putting you in sicker haste. "'Are you drunken or are you demented?' "'Na, na, but I'm gone awa' to Moffat.' "'Oh, goodness pity the poor old body. "'How can you gang off to Moffat, man? "'What have you to do at Moffat? "'Do you mind that the morn is the day of our solemnity?' Hoard out of my gate, old wife, and Denny speak of solemnities to me. I'll keep it at Moffat the morn. Aye, good wife, and ye shall keep it at Moffat too. What do you think of that woman? To woo ye, Denny, ken the metal that's in an old body till it be tried. Andrew, Andrew Burnett! Get away with your frightened looks, woman, and haste you, gang, and fling me out my Sabbath day clays. And Jean Linton, ma woman, do you hear gang and pit on your bridal gown and your silk hood? For ye mon be at muff at the morn too, and it is mere nor time we were away. Did I look so bombazed, woman, till I tell ye that our ain Mary is to meet us at muff at the morn? Oh, Andrew, did a sport with the last feelings of an old forsaken heart. God forbid, my old wife, that I ever sported with feelings of yours cried Andrew, clasping her in his arm and bursting into tears. There are as a sacred to me as breathings free the throne of grace. But it is true that I tell you our dear bairn is to meet us at Moffat the morn. We a son in every hand, and we mourn in gang and see her reins again, and kiss her and bless her afore we dee. The tears now rushed from the old woman's eyes like fountains and dropped from her sorrow-worn cheeks to the earth, and then, as with a spontaneous movement, she threw her skirt over her head, kneeled down at her husband's feet, and poured out her soul in thanksgiving to her maker. She then rose up quite deprived of her senses through joy, and ran crouching away on the road towards Moffat, as if hasting beyond her power to be at it. But Andrew brought her back, and they prepared themselves for their journey. Kirkstall being twenty miles from Moffat, they set out on the afternoon of Tuesday the 16th of September, slept that night at a place called the Turnberry Shield, and were in Moffat next day by noon. Wearisome was the remainder of the day to that aged couple. They wandered about conjecturing by what road their daughter would come, and how she would come attended. "'I have made up my mind on both these matters,' said Andrew. "'At first I thought she was likely she would come out to the east, because our blessings come for that earth.' But finding now that that would be o'er near to the very road we hae come ourselves, I now take it for granted she will come from the south, and I just think I see her leading a bonny boy on every hand and a servant lass carrying a bit bundle ain't her. The two now walked out on all the southern roads in all hopes to meet their Mary, but always returned to watch the shadow of the Holy Cross, and by the time it fell due east they could do nothing but stand in the middle of the street and look around them in all directions. At length, about half a mile out on the Dumfries Road, they perceived a poor beggar woman approaching, with two children following close to her, and another beggar woman way behind. Their eyes were instantly riveted on these objects, for Andrew thought he perceived his friend the dwarf in the one that was behind, and now all other earthly objects were to them nothing save these approaching beggars. 
At that moment, a gilded chariot entered the village from the south and drove by them at full speed, having two liverymen before and two behind, clothed in green and gold. "'Ach, wow, the vanity of worldly grandeur!' said Andrew as the splendid vehicle went thundering by. But neither he nor his wife deigned to look at it farther, their whole attention being fixed on the group of beggars. "'Aye, it is just my woman,' said Andrew. "'It is just herself. I ken her gang yet. Sir, press down we poor tittle though she be. But I didn't care how poor she be, for baith her and hers shall be welcome to my fireside as long as I hain. While their eyes were thus strained and their hearts melting with tenderness and pity, Andrew felt something embracing his knees, and on looking down there was his Mary, blooming in splendour and beauty, kneeling at his feet. Andrew uttered a loud hysterical scream of joy and clasped her to his bosom, and old Jean Linton stood trembling with her arms spread, but durst not close them on so splendid a creature till her daughter first enfolded her in a fond embrace, and then she hung upon her and wept. It was a wonderful event, a restoration without parallel. They indeed beheld their Mary, their long-lost darling. They held her in their embrace believed in her identity and were satisfied. Satisfied, did they say? They were happy beyond the lot of mortals. She had just alighted from her chariot, and perceiving her aged parents standing together, she ran and kneeled at their feet. They now retired into the hostel, where Mary presented her two sons to her father and mother. They spent the evening in every social endearment, and Mary loaded the good old couple with rich presents watched over them till midnight when they both fell into a deep and happy sleep, and then she remounted her chariot and was driven away. If she was any more seen in Scotland, I never heard of it, but her parents rejoiced in the thoughts of her happiness till the day of their death. Mount Benger, January the 10th, 1828 Thank you so much for listening. This book can be read online at asls.arts.gla.ac.uk. I'll leave a link to it in the description. If you want to suggest or submit a short story or a subject you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page. And subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.